Hi, everybody. It's Brett Domstrand, Principal at Lake Marion Elementary, and we want to say thank you for listening to the MESPA Principal Cast. I am here with our distinguished guest, Heather Forbes. Heather, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's so great to be here. Now, everyone, uh, part of the reason why we have Heather here is that she is going to be one of our keynote speakers on Wednesday, February 5th at Institute. And you can sign up for Institute at mespa.net backslash institute. And uh, all your information will be there, including um, how to learn about what Heather will be speaking about and to get yourself registered. We really hope that you will be there. Uh, Heather is out of Boulder, Colorado now, and she has written the books Dare to Love, Beyond Consequences, Help for Billy, and I believe there's even more coming in the future, right, Heather? There is. In fact, I literally just sent it over to my uh, copywriter five minutes ago. So I am I am done writing it, and I'm very, very excited about it. It's going to be uh, oh. about, yeah, it's going to be about how, how to really put a trauma-informed classroom together and the how-to of all that it takes to do that. Oh, that, you know, I'll tell you, there's nothing like the feeling of sending something <laughs> off and going, done. I put all my all my energy into it. I feel like I have given it, given it my best. I, I, I can appreciate that feeling. Totally. I, I'm working on my doctorate right now, and so that's uh, ah, I, so I know. know I know working working on how much how much time it takes to put this together. So so you know, help for Billy is is the book that I read, and you know what I really some of my takeaways when I think about the Billies in our schools, especially, is that we don't always, it's hard for us to always look with a trauma-informed lens. And you really take that as part of the task of, of how we interpret situations and how we make sure we're making kids who might be coming from a trauma-filled environment and how to make sense of how they think. Can you talk a little bit about how this book came to be? Sure. You know, it, it came to be with my work with a lot of students in the schools. Um, I actually used to work in a very high needs elementary school, well, it was K through six, and every single student there was what I would consider a Billy was coming from a very tough background, and so you know I, I watched these kids and I was like, wow, you know what we're doing just isn't working. But that was part of the equation. The other part of the equation that really stemmed from where the book came was me as a mom uh, raising two children that had been severely traumatized. Uh, both my children were adopted out of Russia. Long story there, but anyway, you know, they had experienced early childhood trauma, and even though they were in what I thought was a stable, loving home, I still experienced intense issues with them, not only in the home, but then, of course, in the school. So I was, you know, I was working in this area. I was raising children that were severely traumatized, and I just knew that something different had to be done. Well, and and, and you really put that front and center, and, and the way that you look at um, talking about consequences versus how do we help kids process through situations, understand that, yes, there are sometimes ramifications of the decisions we make, but not from that punitive lens. Um, tell us a little bit about that part, because it's, it's super fascinating, everyone. You know, I think this is where it really, the rubber hits the road. This is the biggest shift I think we can make in education, is looking at how do we discipline but not punish children, rather empower children. Like just kind of wrap that around your head because it's so different than everything we've done. And I want to make sure that we make the point clear that this is still about accountability. Our children need to be held accountable. The problem is we've been 
holding them accountable and more of a shame-based, fear-based place. And when kids are coming out of a traumatic situations or just really rough homes, they already have enough fear. And what we know from brain science is that if we add more fear to a child who already is deep in the throes of fear, they're only going to create this, you're going to create this child that is living in more fear. They don't get better. They actually get worse. And that's why we have seen this cycle of children not getting better and looping from school to school and ultimately dropping out. So I bring in the brain science and, but bring in actual tools and things that we can do to hold kids accountable, as I said, but then empower them to learn how to do something different. You know, it's, it's interesting when, um, one of the things that you, you mentioned in the book and, and I, I wrote it down because it was something that, that, that kind of was for me a, as a principal of a 700 students is to think to myself, what drives children's behaviors? And, you know, because oftentimes in, in our role in schools, especially for principals, is we are called in as a reactionary at, at a time where the incident has already occurred or the student is already escalated. And so our job is to quickly de-escalate a situation or to make sense of what's happening in a situation. And, and I thought that line of, you know, understanding what drives a child's behaviors can help us come from more of that informed lens, I guess I'll say. Um, and, and so w- when you refer to that, talk a little bit about um, how that came to be of thinking about what drives the child's behaviors before we make decisions. Yeah, I think that's the whole piece is that we've been dealing with children from a behavioral level. And so we just go in there trying to change a behavior. You know, how do I get Billy to be able to sit still, to be respectful, to stop kicking his neighbor, to you know do all these things? The problem is that when we understand the science behind all this, we see that it's not a behavioral issue. The behavior is only a manifestation of a deeper issue of regulation. So let me talk a little bit about that whole idea of regulation. It's basically understanding a child's nervous system, understanding is this child in a place of balance? Are they in a place where they can handle the stress coming at them or are they close to their breaking point? And so the whole premise of what I work with and what I teach is understanding that We must learn to work with children from a regular regulatory standpoint rather than a behavioral standpoint. And when we can do that, we get down to the root of the cause. This is, you know, if you're, if you walk into the emergency room, they're not going to just put a bandaid on something that's bleeding. I mean, they're going to take, they're going to take x-rays. They're going to find out what is the cause of the bleeding. They're not just going to put a, a superficial patch over it. And that's pretty much what we've been doing with behavior. So this is really asking the question, what's driving the behavior? Not that it's right, not that it's wrong. We're not going to go with any judgment, but stepping back and understanding from the child's perspective, and that's a really important piece here, looking at from their perspective, why are they doing the things that they are doing? And when we can get into the shoes of the child, then we understand better. And what's even more beneficial to that is we have better solutions. We have solutions that not only stop the behavior, but they help children change in the long term. And we have a much better ability to help our children not just change behavior, but help them heal. Right. You know, and, and using that analogy of going into the hospital with a wound and they don't just put a Band-Aid on it is is, is so true. You know, you, you talk a lot about how 
our, our, our kids who are, who are exposed to trauma, I'll, I'll say it that way, rather than living in trauma, because it's not always trauma, but those traumatic effects are what really um, hurt our kids as they're, as they're coming into our schools, is um, you talk about Billy, and we can, as a proactive team, try to remove the obstacles that might make Billy struggle more or find um, trouble in the world. And, and you say those people that are most loving or the ones that are caring about him um, might find that then Billy is creating his own obstacles to put in the way of the adults who are, who are doing that. And, and you come from that perspective of love and attitude and of how we, how we respond. Um, share a little bit about how you came to that perspective and, and how you've seen that work. You know, I'll start probably from the, the child's perspective to answer that, is that when children grow up, and you know, I think trauma is kind of a big word. I think we just have to understand a lot of our students are just coming from pretty stressful environments. And when you have parents who, and it's not just poverty, by the way, it can be out of affluence. Let's say you've got a Billy whose parents are working 14 hours a day. They're prominent surgeons or prominent attorneys. You know, they've got this, this great title. But what's happening in the home is you have a child that doesn't feel connected, a child who doesn't feel that they're worthy. They feel that their their parents are are more important for that the, the jobs their parents are doing are more important for, for Billy. And so children develop a very negative belief system about themselves that I must be the problem. I'm not worthy. I'm not okay. And that is pervasive. I mean, I cannot tell you how many students I have worked with on more on a one-on-one uh, clinical sense who have been able to express to me, even from like the five years old, that they don't even deserve to be on this planet. And when you are, I mean, when you really stop and think about what that does to their attitude, to their lack of motivation, to their behaviors, if they just don't care, it really stems from a deep, deep place within their hearts. And so when we work with children, it's it's getting them to feel like they, they do belong, that they are important and helping them to shift that mindset within themselves. And I have really seen this when we put in all the parameters. And what I still see is some kids will sabotage what, what we've mm-hmm. done for them. Like, right. Like, right? Like we've made it <laughs> so there's no way that they can fail. And what do they do? They fail. And you're and, like, where did that come from? Well, so, and that's where, that's where you know, Heather, the, the, the tricky part is and as, as the – I want to say the trained adults, we are the ones who are supposed to be the professionals. It's so hard to hide your letdown or your reaction when that happens. It is because you know what? That's the other thing we have to, this isn't just about students. This is also about us, the adults, whatever our role is. We really have to start disconnecting from the student's outcome. And I know that's like another mind blower because educational systems are all based off of outcome. But right. if we are expecting a child to do something and to perform and to and to have all these expectations, you know what? We inherently are putting more stress on them. So I think that just we have to step back and go, you know what? I'm going to set this up. I'm going to put everything in place for Billy. Whether or not Billy can receive that help, whether or not Billy is ready to change, that's, you know, that's Billy's journey. And we have well, to start disconnecting a little bit. Well, you know, it's uh, what I like is uh, it, it, the back of the book is kind of more like a, a manual for how you can have these d- productive discussions with a child who is, who is living with. I, I guess I'll, I'll use the term ACEs, which which are yes. um, uh, um, adverse childhood experiences for those who aren't familiar with that. But um, for for our students who are who are coming from that environment or who are still in that environment is 
in, in Help for Billy, the great thing is in the back, there's different dialogues you can have to help model and walk a child through ways they can self-talk, ways that they can work with others um, to to be their best selves. They're not going to be perfect, and, and you call it out really well, but it's to give them the tools to keep improving and, and having something to draw from when they're in that critical space. Absolutely. You know, I think this is the conversation we don't know how to have. We grew up, you know, our as adults, our blueprints from our own families and the way that we went through school, the way that we are trained, those conversations were never given to us. So this is like learning a whole new language. I kind of joke when I say it's like learning the language of trauma. You got to mm-hmm. become bilingual because you have to understand it from the child's perspective and be able to use the words that make sense to that child that are not threatening, but still hold them accountable. So it's a little bit of an art to it. Absolutely. Well, and and you have the training and you are so articulate in explaining it. And uh, for for those of us who are who who maybe our principal classes or our teaching classes didn't quite give us those tools, we're having to learn and adapt to them. And mm-hmm. oftentimes the kids are our best teachers of all right, no one told me how to handle this one. And uh, so it, it's nice to know, um, just like with your books, that there, there are those opportunities to, uh, to grow our skills. Um, you know, I want to, I want to mention another thing is, um, well, there's there, the brain science that's in there, but I'm going to come back to the brain science piece um, because I think that when we talk about the window of stress tolerance and where, what part of the brain kids are coming from is important. But you also um, mentioned about some of the subtle traumas that our kids can experience where we go, you, you mentioned the affluent house. Um, but when we talk about um, why is a kid acting like that? They've got nice clothes. They come from a family that's still married or, or they just got divorced, but that's all it's just divorce. Or, and you talk about how subtle traumas make an impact on kids. Um, talk a little bit about how that came, came to be because I think that's really relevant to what we do in education. No, it is. You know, I think that any child that is acting out or you know, shutting down or just being defiant and you know, all the words we put on noncompliant – any child that is acting that way, I just see them that they're somehow disconnected. And to me, that's just when we need to move into a relationship. We don't always have to figure out, oh, well, what's the trauma? Uh, it's helpful, uh, especially when we're dealing with a child that's like a frequent flyer in your office all the time, mm-hmm. but um, to know what's really going on. But we do have to broaden that definition of trauma. Trauma isn't something that happens just, uh, you know, by the definition, you know, foster care. Okay. That's trauma. But you know what? I've seen children move in and out of foster care who actually have done really well. And, but others that maybe had one incident that did have just done horribly. And so what is the difference? And I always like to look at it from three aspects to say, this is not just the experience itself. It's the feeling that a child has during the experience. So it's the feeling of being hopeless helpless or powerless. That's really what defines trauma. It is something that is very personal to that child. It might be something about their personality that they didn't feel helpless, but another child did. Uh, And, you know, I think all of us have grown up in our own families. I know I come from a family of five children. And if we all sit around and talk about our childhoods during Thanksgiving dinner, you would think that we came from five different families. (laughs) we, We all had a different perception. We all had different relationships. And so that's what we really have to look at is not to say, oh, well, their trauma is more severe. No, no, no. It's not a quantifiable piece. It's a qualifiable piece. 
Right. Well, it's, you know, I, I came from a family of eight, <laughs> so I can, I can appreciate cause I, I'll tell you uh, with the holidays coming and everyone trying to make uh, arrangements for where we're going to be for Thanksgiving and, and Christmas in our family. Um, you, you see how all of our personalities come out of <laughs> what right. we, what we're going to end up doing. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, uh, you know, you know, so um, we do though, cause when, when our kids, I don't go back to this is, um, it's healthy for our kids to see parents or teachers or kids engaged in healthy dialogue or if they're engaged in conflict to help see what conflict resolution can look like. Because if we're modeling um, conflict and then we're leaving a situation or acting frustrated, our, our kids can see that that's something that um, that's their go-to. And, and it brings me to the part about um, when, when you talk about like top down or bottom up in the brain science, and I think about when we are at our, our worst, I'll just say it that way, is that we go to the easiest shortcut in our brains of how to solve a problem. So if for me yelling at you and then running away is my go-to and that has worked before, I'm going to keep going back to that well until it proves that it doesn't work. Um, talk a little bit about how we um, not fix those behaviors, but how we can help the brain um, be able to act in a better place. Yeah, and I think that's where this mindful movement is so beautiful with the trauma-informed movement, and it is about becoming more aware. And so if your go-to is to yell, uh, you it's about learning how to stop in the moment and go, okay, wait a minute, I want to yell. I feel like yelling would be like I deserve to yell. But then it's stopping yourself, taking that deep breath, which actually is exactly what we're asking our children to do. Mm-hmm. And so if we can start, then, and this is the hardest thing you ever do, is to change those old patterns because they, so, they are so ingrained into our whole nervous system. The patterning of our brains want to go directly to that. But having the wherewithal, and again, the, the awareness and mindfulness to stop, take a breath, and then be able to say, okay, wait a minute, um, I got to do something different here. And even if you say it out loud, at least you are doing something different. Um, that's really, you're right. We have to model that for our students because we can't ask them to do something that we haven't done ourselves. I think that that's the accountability to make sure that we are showing them and modeling to them how to react in those moments where we are most stressed out, we're most raw, we're most aggravated, or in essence, where we're most dysregulated. You know, it's it's interesting when you know when I think about it. Um, so, in in my school, for instance, we have a program for students um, with IEPs that are have emotional or behavioral regulation needs, and um, and so often it will provide us opportunities to have to support them in in crisis situations. And um, I was you know you give you give the negative thought brain and the positive thought brain and reading through when a kid goes i'm not good at this or nobody loves me or i you know those kind of things and how we help reframe for for a child and um now you have a personal journey as well with you with your children you mentioned that in the beginning um can you talk a little bit about how those strategies you had to implement as a parent now is what's translating into these books? <laughs> oh, yeah, it's a whole long story, but I'll try to make it short. <laughs> um, and I, I think it goes back to that whole idea of learning to speak trauma. So if the child says, I hate you, or this assignment's stupid, it's really a mirror into their soul. Like if they say, I hate you, what they're really saying is, I hate myself. 
You know, this assignment's stupid. Well, what they're really saying is, I feel stupid. It is much easier to push that onto somebody else than it is to feel that kind of negativity on yourself. Right. And I really think I that's where I learned it from my kids. And as a parent, it's really hard not to take it personally. I think, you know, as an administrator or a teacher, it's it's definitely hard too. But there's something about that parent spectrum that it really becomes personal. And so I had to really learn to step back and go, okay, this behavior that they're projecting onto me, it sounds a little clinical, but, you know, that they're putting onto me, it's not about me. I mean, that's sort of my mantra. And I think that's a mantra that we as, you know, us at the school, whatever, again, whatever your role is, you've got to say, this is not about me. Because it can feel like they're really pushing that into you. But when you can step back and go, oh, my goodness, this is so about them. Mm-hmm. What would it feel like to hate yourself? I mean, to really hate yourself. That's a horrible feeling. And so that puts the adult then back into a place of empathy not to get mad at it, not to agree with it, of course, but then to say, how can I move in relationship, build connection with this child, get them back into a state of regulation, and then not only teach them not to say these negative things, but more importantly, how do I empower them to be able to find that love for themselves, find that place of balance for themselves, that empowerment piece as well. And empowerment is is such the key word here because I think that anytime we want our our billies to um, turn into Andes, we'll just use that example yes. from the book is 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 giving them the language and the um, and and help them recognize their greatness and and what it is that they can do well. And I think your example of like this work is stupid. No, it we might be talking about. Um, how how they're feeling about themselves and how do we train uh, how do we retrain that thinking because I think there's some wiring that happens of if I get in they get into cycles our kids at certain ages um, to help give them new ways of thinking and try to try to drive that in the brain but um, and, oh go and ahead I was like and also to retrain our teachers because if this child or this assignment stupid yeah. the teachers automatically going to say well you know, it's not stupid. You better work on it. Otherwise you're going to fail. And so there's this combative piece that comes out. And for kids that come out of trauma, I'm telling you, you don't want to get in a power struggle with them. This is the beauty of them. They don't give up. They have tenacity that will go, I mean, and go. They don't give up. (laughs) Right, right. You're not going to win that power struggle. No. You know, it's interesting. I, I just kind of turning turning what we were just talking about around is is almost when they say that this assignment is stupid. Could it, could it be interpreted by a teacher that you think my assignment's stupid and and almost like you're personally affronting me for giving exactly. this to you? And then that that starts a whole another line of power struggle that can come from it. Right. So that mantra, "It's not about me," is so important to really be able to to step back and not let yourself absorb it. And it's hard on a day in and day out basis. It's really, really hard. It is. And, and, and by the way, everybody, um, you know, when we, when we talk about, about the kids and help for Billy, it, it, it recognizes that, that our, that, that these kids exist, that they are our tricky ones. They are the ones who are deserving of so much love. And it's not that this is easy. Heather, you really do call it out of this is hard work. And this is why we have to be looking for different ways and resources in order to better support them. So uh, as we talk and we go, oh, yeah, well, you can just do this. Or here's the, it, it, it's, it, it, you recognize that this isn't easy. Um, you know, some of the other things you call out, you talk about transitions. You talk about what a student might be walking into school carrying um, in, in, in their backpack of emotions, we can say. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, you talk about the window of stress tolerance. 
And you know, you mentioned empowerment, but can you talk a little bit about what that window of stress tolerance is for, for our students with trauma? Sure, and I'm kind of laughing because this one is such a visual piece, and so we're talking about it, but um, it's really understanding that the amount, well, let me just put it this way, that like your Andes, like your Andes are the students that come into the schools that have a pretty solid background. And so they have a very low level of stress, and it's just like their stress point. We all have a certain point that we resonate at. And so Andy has a small, just set point of stress. So that means the point from which he will go just to the normal living day-to-day to hit his breaking point is this big window. There's a big space. So Andy can handle the stressors of the day. And, you know, school is stressful for any child, just mm-hmm. socially, emotionally, academically. There's a lot of stuff going on. And so Andy can handle all that. But then when we compare that to Billy, Billy just resonates at a high level of stress. And that might be something, an incident that happened 10 years ago. It might be birth trauma. It might be something happened last night. But now we have a student then that just comes into the classroom. The minute he steps off that, let me put it this way, the minute he steps on the bus to the point that he gets off the bus and into the classroom, he's just wound up, right? He's just revved up. And so his space between where he's at and where he's going to blow and hit his breaking point is a very, very small window. There's not a lot of room to handle stress. And this is why we have the students that it can be one little thing. His blue pencil breaks and all of a sudden we have a room clear, right? Because his pencil broke. And you stand there and you go, well, what's wrong with this kid? Well, it's not that there's something wrong with him. It's the fact that his window of stress tolerance is so small. He lives moments... I mean, just moments away from his breaking point. So really the role for us in the classroom, and of course when I work with parents, is to help students increase that window of tolerance. Because Billy's not a bad kid. He just needs help in reducing his internal stress. And then Billy can be able to function more like an Andy. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, um, I, I keep thinking unfortunately not unfortunately but i i'm thinking of a student right now who i i i'm i'm personally dealing with a lot more and, and he's having having some having some struggles and as the mm-hmm. holidays are coming i have a feeling it's going to it's going it to continue to bring up yes. some other some yes. other issues and needs for him and and i'm always trying to be aware of what my body looks like of how my brain is feeling when i get called down to help and what my reaction is going to be. And, and, and you do a good balance of, of saying you've got, you, you have to have strong boundaries, mm-hmm. but you can also be empathetic, kind. You can uh, listen. You, you know, you give some other, uh, other ways of our, our, our children in trauma need somebody who's going to be both, going to be the disciplinarian, not in discipline mode, but in the, I'm going to be consistent. You yes. can, I'm going to react the same way. So it, for, for you, it can be something that you'll know will be, be always there, but that relationship, no matter what the situation is, is still going to be there. So that child knows I'm never giving up on you. I'm going to support you. And, um, that's really hard work and it's really hard to do day in, day out when you've got you know, tricky kids who are pushing you to the limits. Yes. So I, I appreciate you recognizing it and acknowledging it. And, you know, one other chapter, and this is, uh, I'm going to get buzzwordy for everybody out here, but uh, social emotional learning. 
Um, you, you dedicate an entire chapter um, talking about social-emotional learning, and, and your references that you use um, are, are definitely, everyone, it's worth looking at, at the resources that Heather calls out in here. But, you know, you talk about um, different ways that we can promote how a child learns the social skills and how they learn the emotional regulation. But one of the things that stood out for me um, was just even like looking at the four L's and um, giving that to the child of, of helping them understand what logic is, what language is, listening, giving them, oh, I'm forgetting the other L now. <laughs> well, I don't remember learning. what the other L is, Heather. Learn, I apologize. Learning. learning from past mistakes. Yes, there we go. Yes. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I think about that as, as principles and leaders of when we're going into situations or when we're helping process with a child after an intense situation of giving them those, those pieces and helping them understand them and, and get better at it. Um, you know, can you talk a little bit about your work with social emotional learnings? I know a lot of our principals probably want to know, um, you know, what tidbits you have to share there. Sure. And so two points that come to mind first is why, why do we need to do this? Well, when you look at like Andy's family again, you know, Andy sits down for dinner and has a family meal. This is where children learn to stop, to listen, to engage in conversations to be able to discuss and learn from mistakes and and so there's so much that happens in a healthy family system that children that have that they come into the classroom and so they're they're equipped but our billies again who don't have that and they're kind of in, living in chaos they they miss this skill set and as as you all know i mean it doesn't matter if it's preschool or 12th grade school is a social environment and when you don't have that skill set you a student will easily be ostracized they will be made fun of they will be bullied or they become the bully they don't know how to connect and they're odd uh, and so they really struggle and so we have to be able to then say well what can we do to help our students become better at this skill set that they're lagging in these skills and so Adding in the social emotional piece doesn't mean that you have to add another curriculum. And this is the piece I want people to really see is that this is just a cultural shift in the school. And so let's say you have a, a kindergarten teacher that is reading a story. She can start then adding in the social emotional content to say, oh, which character, uh, you know, was sad and why were they sad? How do you know mm -hmm. they were sad? But then that can translate all the way to, to 12th grade for a book report on required reading. And, you know, in that book report, I want you to tell me which character was most dysregulated, which one, uh, you know, what were the social dynamics going on? So kids can start looking for these things, identifying in other characters, because that then they can see in themselves a little bit later. And so adding that social emotional piece into our already established curricula, I think is so beautiful because we don't do enough of that. That's just, you know, I always think this is a cultural thing in our world. We're so intellectualized. We've kind of forgotten how to connect in a heart-centered <laughs> way. And so this doesn't just mean it needs to be for the Billies. It's all for, also for the Andes as well. Right. Now, let me just add this one piece. Some, yeah, people, yeah. some people will add in actual social-emotional curriculum that they buy, and some of them are very good. But what I want to share is that I want us to always take a note, though, to say if we're asking our billies who have trauma to share and to be able to sit in a circle and talk about how they feel according to this curriculum that was purchased – it, it sometimes can backfire because you're asking kids to be vulnerable. You're asking children to trust. And that works for Andy, 
but it doesn't always work for Billy. So I just always want to say, make sure that we add in a little trauma focus to any of the curriculum that we have on social emotional learning. Just a, just a little warning and to make sure that, that, that we're a little bit more cautious moving into that. It needs to be done, but we need to make sure that we're looking at it from that angle also. You know, it's interesting because I, I think that when we talk about curriculum for SEL is we, we run the danger of falling into the trap of opening up the teacher's manual and just talking our way through it. And yes. sometimes we fail to notice um, where your class is or where some of your students are when we've just got to get through the curriculum. And when I say get through, I'm using my fingers in quotes of uh, it's SEL is that the frameworks around that are not about getting through something like we've got to cover it. It's about digging in and making sure that it's kind of something we do every day. And it's not just at the set time from for 15 minutes. It's about building it in, talking about it after recess or talking about before you're going to a transition or helping kids understand it and be able to practice it and then be able to give feedback and, and learn from it. And I think that's the irony because we intellectualize our social and emotional learning right. <laughs> instead of feeling it. <laughs> so it's, it's it's so crazy. You know, I always worry about it with SEL is like, are we going to end up with that being on the report card? <laughs> SEL. Oh, you got an A. Good job. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, l- uh, luckily we're not there. But you, when you talk about the intellectualizing of it, it's uh, it's like, oh, boy, you can you could see how that pendulum can swing over in that direction. And that's not what we're talking about here. This is about giving tools to to our adults especially and to the kids who are living in these situations to 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 give them the language to give them the process to give them the ways to be able to speak a common language together and have kids be successful no matter what their what what background they're bringing with them to school and you know what that does that helps them with their behavior Children who don't have the words will act out. Behavior is mm-hmm. a form of communication. So here you've got Billy. He's angry at Andy, and he kicks Andy. Well, what if we give him the words where he can say, I'm mad at you. I would much rather have him be able to say that, even blurt it out, than right. kick him. And Absolutely. so, yeah, we, we can actually decrease negative behaviors by having a much deeper cultural uh, perspective around implementing social-emotional learning. Right. And even even giving language to our teachers so they understand, like when you see somebody, you look frustrated right now or by the way you're balling up your hands, I can see that you might need to take a break because you're feeling upset. Would you like that break or helping kids understand what it looks like and then giving words to it so they can go, oh, I am doing that right now. Okay, you know, that that language is such an important piece Mm because I almost think it's another it's another way of learning English, but it's being able to put put uh, words to the feelings or to the actions that we're taking. Absolutely, um, Heather. This half hour has just flown by already, and uh, <laughs> and and I, I'm really grateful that uh, that you took the time out to to talk with me, but also for all of our MESPA principals that will be coming to institute in February. And so, everyone, again, I'm going to mention that. Uh, um, Go to mespa.net backslash institute um, and then register for institute because uh, Heather will be speaking on Wednesday, February 5th in the afternoon. So she's going to be our keynote that day. So come have some lunch, come meet Heather, listen to her speak. And I know you'll have your books available as well. Right, Heather? 
Absolutely. And thank you for having me. It, it's, it's been a pleasure. I, I, and everyone, I should tell you, I've had a chance to talk with Heather a couple of times now, and she is the real deal and just genuine as can be. And I, I'm, I'm really grateful. Now, Heather, you're out there on Twitter and you're sharing a lot about Beyond Consequences. So I know that people can go to beyondconsequences.com. And how can they find you on Twitter? Uh, Twitter is just Heather T as in trouble Forbes. So Heather T. Forbes, you can find me. Excellent. Well, uh, everyone, so please register. Thanks for listening to the Mespa Principal Cast. And Heather, again, we are grateful for your time here, and we look forward to seeing you in February. Thank you so much. Have a great day, everyone. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of MESPA Principal Cast. For more information about the Minnesota Elementary School Principals Association, visit mespa.net.